So as we have seen um, in the genealogy from last week, that the life of Enoch appears uh, two-thirds through the genealogy as a bright light in a story of living and dying, living and dying, living and dying. And the indictment through the genealogy is clear, that that those who are dying are those who are sinners. And so as we read in our time this morning of uh, New Testament uh, reflection in Romans 6, there with the wages of sin is death. And and that's what you're seeing in the genealogy of chapter 5. And then as you're watching this theme emerge of life and death, life and death, and life and death, you see Enoch stand out, or Enoch uh, stand out. And and, and the point of his standing out and the presentation that we're provided for him is that for sinners, those who surround him, both before and after, living and dying, living and dying, there is left a hope of eternal life. Though indeed you die in this age as penalty of sin, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we look at Enoch, we see that his reward was great, right? He was translated to heaven, directly translated um, for going against the grain of a wicked generation, I didn't have time last week, so I just want to briefly uh, provide this reference for you and read it, because as we think about it, it means that he walked with God, he walked with God, and as it repeats it in a very short series of words, he walked with God, he was not, couldn't be found, why not? Because he walked with God, I said. It stands out. This is a man who stood out and going against the grain of a wicked generation. The, 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 the hall of faith, of what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 Unites Abel, who we know of, unites Abel in Enoch, is these men of faith. So it says this in verse 4 of chapter 11. I just read it for you. Is How are we to understand what it means to walk with God? Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by his faith, by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You recall because he stands out as witness of immortality. That indeed everyone will live and then die, but some will go on to live yet again. And that is the testimony we receive from Abel at the very beginning of redemptive history. Now Enoch is that next great example, and Hebrews 11 explains it, verse 5, by faith. Enoch. So, so when we think of it, he, he walked with God. What does that mean? Well, that he lived by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found. Nobody could find him. Because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. But again, maybe we ask. But what does it mean to walk with God? Or what does it mean to please God? Just to be clear, for you, for me, in the story of Enoch, what are we learning? Verse 6 of Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That is the story of Enoch. 
And the story continues. It remains true and fixed in our lives as well. That it's impossible today to please God apart from faith. And so noteworthy is the fact about Enoch that he lived in fellowship with the Lord. And, and it, it, noteworthy, too, is the fact that he lived in fellowship. I, I, I think, I don't know what the general age of the audience in this room right now is. We were to scale it and find the average. It's, it's, it's young. And here Enoch, he, he walked with the Lord, walked by faith for 365 years. That's a long time. Uh, I'm 38, and I struggle with walking with the Lord. Uh, He he did so in a a God-honoring, he lived in a God-honoring life for 365 years. It's noteworthy and commendable. Interesting, too, is where this is written. Now, remember how the story is written is where Moses is in the plains of Moab writing, copying down the law of, the God, uh, the law of God for the people of Israel. As then they will, translate, they will follow his successor, who is, uh, who is Joshua, and then they will go into the promised land. They will begin the conquest and so on and so forth. And so this book of the law is not to depart from you as you go. Take it with you. Write it on the forehead. Write it on the waist. Memorize it. Talk about when you stand up. Talk about when you lay down. Don't lose sight of the law of the Lord. And yet here, interesting, he notes that Enoch walked with God and was pleasing by faith. In other words, someone who sat under the law, received the law, could realize that legalism isn't what it's called for. Neither is it what's called for today. Micromanaging laws, micromanaging systems. But what was called for all the way before the law and through the law and continues now in our lives is what pleases God is to walk by faith in obedience. Not strategies of obedience apart from faith. Simple curbing of appetites through aesthetic discipline isn't what pleases the Lord. For, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in the example of Enoch, it's impossible to please him. Don't even try. Apart from faith. You must believe that he exists. Rest upon him in Christ. And believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. As we learn from Enoch. Now, if we think about the world of Genesis 4 uh, or Genesis 5, to be clear, Enoch is not the only individual who did walk with the Lord in those days. I mean, we have a long line of generational history here in chapter 5. And if you know, and we've already covered this, but in verse 26 of chapter 4, you see there, at the birth of Enosh, that is following Seth, you see the notation there, at this time, and at that time, the birth in verse 26 of Enosh. People, collectively, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that would, that, would, that would work to continue through chapter 5 in the genealogy. That indeed, it wasn't just Enoch, but it was others as well. But Enoch stands out and is provided for us of a brilliant example of a man who 365 years lived faithfully for the glory of God. To the point of during this time, uh, we should note well that Enoch didn't live alone either in the sense of his piety was only personal and it was private. But rather the reference that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord is a church history, not just a private account or personal 
history. But I think Luther is correct when he tells us at this time, he says, quote, it was the highest form of worship. It was that which was pleasing to God. He's commenting on verse 26. He says, which is pleasing to God. He says, which includes the fear of God at this time. There was a trust in God. There was confession. There was prayer. And yes, there was preaching, says Luther. So in other words, by the time you get through after Seth and then the birth of Enosh, you have stated organized worship that went beyond just the family of Adam and Eve. And we know that they had stated worship because we have Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices. That is organized. It is seasonal. It was appropriate. So also it was expanded. Organized worship in the people of God beyond the family unit at the time of Enosh. So Enoch benefited greatly from this worship. And indeed, his faith was so nourished, he stood out as a man of faith. Now, though Enoch stood out, the people of God through chapter 5, you have to keep chapter 4 in mind as chapter 5 continues, because the people of God through the genealogy, we recognize they are living in the shadow of Lamech and his descendants. So much so is the expansion of man at this time and the wickedness in his heart that Noah and his family, by the time we get to end of chapter 5, and next week we'll look at chapter 6, that is Noah and his family end up being the vessels to save the world. The world will perish by the time we get done with chapter 5. There'll be Noah and his immediate family. So once again, maybe it's not only Enoch who lived for the Lord during this time, But he was in the minority. So much so that the wickedness is so bad, spread abroad, that all men everywhere will give immediate account through a deluge of judgment. And that's where we go this morning in our text through chapter 5. It's moving from the celebratory Enoch, the moment and the testimony of eternal life that God intends for all whose faith rests upon Christ as he's freely offered to them in the gospel, it moves from the celebratory Enoch to the lamentable characteristics of mankind which bring about the flood. Now, if we move forward, as Pastor Dan read just a few moments ago, beginning with verse 21, we have to do just a little bit of mosaic math. That is how Moses is laying this out. And if we were to assume that there are no gaps in the genealogical record of chapter 5, so I'm just going to assume that with you, you assume that with me, and we'll move forward that way. Now, there's no gaps at this point, no reason to suppose there are gaps, create gaps. We're just going to receive the genealogical dating as is here reported. And we'll begin in verse 21. Again, Methuselah is born to Enoch in verse 21 when Enoch is 65 years old. If, again, we receive this genealogical count as assuming no gaps, this makes the year of Methuselah, the year that Methuselah is born, it makes it the year 687. Now, in verse 21, so from year 687 with Enoch being 65 years old, Enoch is translated to glory in the year 987 being 365 years old. Did you see my math there? I think you can double-check me. But I think that's correct. We simply take 687, we add the 300 years reported, we know that Enoch was 65, thus we come to the end of verse 24, and we are in the year 980. 
seven. That's where the world is at this point in the genealogy. 987 years. Then we come to verses 25 and 27. So at the end of verse 24, you are now in the earth, age 987. Verse 25. We pick up with Methuselah, who was born in verse 21. Enoch is now translated, and we pick up here. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Now, not the Lamech of old, which we know, but he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech, 782 years. And, which makes sense, he had other sons and daughters. I mean, if you live 780 more years, yes. Thus all the days of Methuselah, isn't that staggering? Were 969 years. And he died. Now, if I were to ask the kids in the front row or the kids anywhere else spread throughout the congregation at this point in time, if I were to ask the children who just now realize I need to pay attention, we just got referred to in the sermon, but if we were to ask the kids, what is the one thing you know about Methuselah? Every kid who's ever brushed shoulders with the church through a children's program or VBS or just hearing it from the other kids in the church realizes that dude was old. That is the one thing that stands out. Or, or a kid to quiz another kid. Do you know who the oldest person was? Do you know how old they lived? How long they lived? So on and so forth. Every single person knows. The thing that stands out about Methuselah to all of us and, and to, the, to the folklore, the stories that go with it, is just that he was the oldest person that ever lived on the earth. 969 years. One scholar says, this undoubtedly makes Methuselah the patron saint of geriatrics. <laughs> Hopefully we're not praying to the saints, but nonetheless, one scholar does note, he must qualify as a saint of geriatrics. Now, if I'm thinking about it for 969 years, of course, it gave me pause Because there's something here to consider about 969 years. Again, when we think about where we're at in our place in life, 38, a little older, a little younger, wherever it is in that ballpark, somewhere within this age, we need to consider when we read something as staggering as 989 years of life, we need to stop and think about our own. And when we begin to think about the passage of time and men and women, how quickly we grow and we blossom and then we grow frail, as the Bible reminds us, that life is, again, we could add, but a vapor. We need to pause this morning and consider the staggering contrast between the frailty of mankind, that is, our own mortality, our own frailty and the passage of time set up against the power of God and the passage of time. Methuselah, living 969 years, is a testament in many ways to the weakness of mankind. When in contrast we see that our Lord, 
but lived 33 years in time. Think about it like this. If you were to read simply verse, um, uh, you're to read verse 27 and stop. Thus all the days of this individual human being, Methuselah, this guy we know through the text of scripture, who historically is, who's historically lived, all of his days were 969 years. And at the end of his 969 years, what we know to be true of him is this. He died. You see, in the longest life ever lived, nothing was accomplished worthy of note in the text of Scripture. Think about that. It's staggering. Again, if we were to subtract right now, think about the passage of time. If we did it right now, and you can check my math again, um, you'd have to report to Adrienne and our family for math. But that would mean that you were born in the year 1050. I just looked up the tiny little historical reference, and you realize the button for clothing wasn't invented yet? That's where you were born. And you've lived to today. And all we'll ever know about you is yeah, he died. Again, what can we learn from this example of 969 years of life and then a quick note on death? I think what we can learn is if we desire to be men and women of wisdom, we would do well to note time itself. Please, please hear me. Time itself does not ensure the significance or impact of one's life. Or we say it, meaning is not bound by age or time experienced. And I don't say this to put Methuselah under the bus. I simply note, I think there's something to ponder here. Again, for consider the contrast between our weakness of the passage of time and the power of God. Our Lord lived but 33 or so years, 934 or so less. And yet, do you recall at the end of John's gospel what is said of him? Do you remember? It's the highlight. It's a summary statement. It says... All the books of the world cannot contain the things he said and did. And that's given if his ministry publicly began around 30 to 31 years old. You're talking now it's even less, three years. The power of God and the weakness and frailty of man. Now, again, to be clear, I I, I want you to to orient your mind and your heart around this concept of the passage of time and the frailty of your life in the right way. I don't mean to be misleading in any way. It is not, to be sure, it is not our duty to be Jesus Christ. It is actually our duty, each and every one of us, as we've learned through the book of Genesis, studying from God's creation 
We understand, as revealed in the text, what our duty is, and it is clear. The duty of every man and every woman is to repent of sin and to believe upon Christ, not to be Jesus Christ. But I will add, his example is for us. That his every moment was lived for the glory of the Father. His every moment was lived for the glory of God. And it's this sense of the passage of time between our Lord and his power and the frailness and the weaknesses of mankind exposes your natural bent and my natural bent toward wasting time and toward wasting the life that God has given to us. Again, if you consider being alive for 38 years, 38 years does not guarantee or ensure some sense of transmittance of significance to the children I have. It doesn't guarantee anything because I spend time. It's how I spend time. It isn't if we sat here and said, if I just had more time or I don't have enough time. It's irrelevant. For time in and of itself, a thing doesn't ensure significance of one's life. What are some pursuits? I think that each of us experience some challenges that each of us, I think our culture broadly, but I just think of the people here on this Lord's Day and myself among you together. I highlight three things that I think steal our time. That prevent our worthy use of time. If we look to our Lord as example that every moment of our Lord's life was given for the glory of God. What prevents you from living for the glory of God daily? What steals your attention and time? What makes you misuse time? And that steward it wisely. I think one of them, I, I think th- these are broad. I, I think you'll agree. Too much entertainment. Too much entertainment. Again, I, I shoot that broadly. Um, maybe you say, I don't entertain enough. Uh, fine. Maybe there's another weakness. I think without weighing each and every one of us where our proclivities are, where our strengths, our weaknesses are, so that we can you know, pinpoint every single transaction, I think most broadly you'd agree there's a spirit of too much entertainment. We were uh, on, Dan and I were on a job this week, and we were listening to the radio. Uh, maybe some of you follow, maybe you don't, but uh, uh, the baseball player, uh, granted he's the best, um, uh, Mike Trout, Uh, I don't know if any of you follow that, but there was a discussion that broke out on the radio regarding Mike Trout's recent contract. Mike Trout just signed with the Angels. Again, maybe you care, maybe you don't. My point is he signed a contract for $450 million to play baseball. 
and based on his averages of how many at-bats he's had in the previous seasons leading up to the season that he's going to enter into in this new contract, he's averaged something like 500 plate appearances. That broke down by the math from his check of guaranteed money of $450 million is that he'll make roughly like $67,000 every at-bat, which the average income for a family of four adult with the, with the uh, legislated two children allowed you, you, uh, they make 63000 on average in a year. And then these guys on the radio began to talk about how the money is just ridiculous. It's not right. It's this, that, and the other. I thought it's a foolish discussion because you're not even tackling what the actual concern is. The actual concern is we, the people, pay those people with our lust for entertainment. We're going to pay... We are the market. Not like, well, the market is the baseball world. And in the baseball world, that's his transactional value. Sure. But who creates the baseball transactional world that they play in? We do. The issue is when you, not like, do they make too much? The point is, why do we give so much? It's because we prize entertainment too highly. You see, I need more time. No, you don't. Time is a gift to which we must steward. And we must steward the time we have wisely. No, I just need to live 969 years. I don't think so. It seems to be of no account. It's not how much time you have. It's how you use the time that you're given. Another issue that stands out, I think, regarding our the stealing of our attention and the poor usage of our time. And I put myself right in these same categories, not me to you as much as me with you and to you all the same. Wrongful relationships. I think that's a challenge for our age groups. Place in life. I really want you to consider wrongful relationships that you possess and how it's working against your investment of time in the kingdom of God. Do you, are you familiar, perhaps you are, with the maxim, I think, I think it's a, uh, or maybe, uh, I think it's a, it's a truism, kind of what uh, people think is general life wisdom. Maybe you've heard it a different way, but this is kind of a way, maybe in pipe, pop psychology, to say, that you are the average. So think of this in, in light of the relationships that you possess in your life. Okay, because I'm challenging you that that is causing waste time. So uh, pop psychology would say it this way. Perhaps you've heard it a different way. You, individual, are the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. You're the average. Of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. Maybe your parents were like mine. uh, Very unlikely, but nonetheless. They say something like, my dad, I can remember my dad saying to me, because I made some poor choices in friendships. I made some poor choices in a lot of things. But that was one of them. Poor relationships. And he would say to me, 
I would say something, we be in something, I can't remember the scenario, I remember the constant word of this, the theme, but we'd be in some sort of c- conversation about it, and, and, and I would be getting punished. And he would say something to me to the effect um, that, you know, among many things, there's nobody else here but you and me. So whatever you did to impress everybody else, look where it's gotten you, right here between just you and me. And we're the only two people that matter. He'd say, Adam, I'd say, well, I didn't do X. I didn't perform the actual whatever took place. Maybe it wasn't just my actual hands that performed it, but he says, right, and you know this, birds of a feather flock together. Or maybe he could have been more sophisticated and said, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. That's the same effect. Let me just read this text and hear it in the context of relations. Because again, who you choose to spend your time with, you might not like this, and you might think that you can be sanitized from it, but you cannot. You cannot. You're not the one person who escapes it. The people who you choose to spend your time with says a lot about you. It does. And it will absolutely, without a doubt, as sure as a law of gravity, impact how much you will or will not serve the kingdom. And again, I'm not just offering this Psalm 1. Blessed is the individual who does what? You, you know it. You, you, you're already, I, I know it. Yes, yes, right? Because it, it's what God intends. Blessed is the individual who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Don't be the average of the five wicked. Don't do it. It says a lot about you. Don't do it. Its influence is hampering your life, not, hint, not, not expanding it, strengthening it, nourishing it. It's hurting it. Because the blessed life is a person who's not in the counsel of the wicked. This is something my dad tried to teach me time and time again. Nor stands in the way of sinners. You're not among them. You're not the average of the five nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, people who scoff at God. The blessed individual is not found there. Think of the stock of your relationships. The blessing is not found there. But the blessing is found in his delighting in the law of the Lord. And then at the end, it's capped with a promise of Psalm 1, uh, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He intimately knows your life. He knows your path. He cares for you because you're his. And then he warns, but the way of the wicked will perish. Another concern, and this is just my third and last concern. When I think about spending more years on life, I just think, again, the life that I have of 38 years so far, I pray that I don't die today. I would love to continue with my family and see my children grow. 
continue to be a part of this wonderful family he has provided me. And I trust you have the same thoughts. But when I do take stock of the years I have and how I ought to live them going forward, I mustn't, and you mustn't, we mustn't, lack personal discipline. Whether it's too much entertainment or the wrong relationships we allow in our lives or even pursue in our lives or a lack of personal discipline. You realize in John 10.10, I don't have time to go there, but you remember our Lord speaks of the thief. John 10, the brilliant uh, text of the Good Shepherd. And he speaks of the contrast between the Good Shepherd and the thief and and the wolves. And, And the thief... This guy, this, this subcontracted hand who sits here and watch, he comes to steal and destroy. But not the good shepherd. That's not why I'm here. In other words, John 10, 10. Do you remember what he says, why he came? What kind of life he wants to give to each one who by faith receive him? He says, I've come that you might have life. And you're like, yes, I know that. And then he, he, he qualifies it that you might have abundant life. You might have life. Yes, indeed. A a life that that will be like uh, where Abel is, where Enoch is, where the the saints of old have died and gone to be with him. Indeed, you'll have life, but also that you might have life abundantly. A life that flourishes. That's why I've come. You see, the abundance of life that Christ intends for you, not just us, think about it in terms of you, Adam, me, Adam Thomas. The life that God, through Christ, intends for Adam Thomas is that my life would be a life free from addiction. Free of regret and free of shame through the choices that I made or the exposure of my lack of personal discipline in my life. That's the life he wants for you. Whether you say, I'm going to live 969 years on earth or you're only going to live, I don't know what the average is. It's coming down for males, by the way. Something to pay attention to. No matter how many days we have, we're to steward them by faith and live wisely. Take stock of the things in them that are negative and contrary to the abundant life that Christ intends and eliminate them. I came across this little article in Business Insider I thought you'd find it interesting. I'm just going to footnote it. So in your mind, make an asterisk. And I'll fill in the, the, the data. And it'll just be a footnote. Because it kind of relates to entertainment, relations, and discipline. From the Business Insider article, it says this, quote, Pornography. So I hope you're hearing this. Pornography in the United States generates more revenue than CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. This is from Business Insider. It it goes on to indict us. People, 
for the market is created by the consumer. Pornography generates more revenue than CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. And more than all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises individually. John Piper in his book, maybe you've read it, it, it it's a helpful short little take, but it's very powerful in its communicative effect, I'm sure you would imagine coming from uh, uh, the, pastor of John, uh, the pastor John Piper. Uh, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, gives a powerful illustration and a warning to each of us. Um, I, I'll read just the extended portion as we wind down our time together. As you begin to move from here, meditating on time. John Piper writes this, quote, a riveting force in my young life. Guys, children, a riveting force in my young life was a plaque that hung in our kitchen over the sink. In Old English script were the words, which perhaps you know them, in Old English poem. Only one life. It will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. The message was clear. You get one pass at life. That's all. Only one. And the lasting measure of that life is Jesus Christ. What would it mean for me to waste my life? That was the burning question I had. Or more positively, we could ask, what would it mean to live well. For those of us in here who have children, we often like lose the force of that to us because we think of the next generation emerging. What does it mean for them to live well? What does it mean to get them in the right position? What does it mean to transmit the right things to them? And we become a conduit for transmission. Great. But oftentimes we become detached ourselves and how are we living our lives? You see, I'll end with this. Time does not ensure significance or impact for the kingdom of God. Through the genealogy, there is a powerful word to the passage of time. They lived and they died. 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 You will live and die. You don't need more time. You need to use the time given. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your mercy and time. You equip us to live wisely, to be the blessed individual of Psalm 1, that, that the things that so easily entangle and, and pull us down from, from, from addictive behaviors uh, to, to fornicating thought to poor relationships 
to not counting our life as valuable, to not receiving your word of truth, that you gave our lives to be abundant lives, that we would flourish, that we'd take that seriously and apply it to our lives. Oh God, grant repentance over our waste. We'd see afresh our need to renew the time, to renew the days. For the passage of time is wasting away. The days are evil. Please help us. We won't see everything in a, in a moment. We won't see everything in a sermon. Please make this sermon, make this thought of time prevail so that we come back to it. That you will graciously show us what we can handle each and every step of the way. And that your grace will empower us to make change, not excuses. Please enable us by your grace and the person of your Holy Spirit. Let this last for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.